St. Thomas most recently has been applauded for his approach to faith and reason and for their complementarity. There are borderline questions. Technically, they're called the preambles of faith that reason is able to attain. And most significantly, the knowledge that God exists. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Dauphiné, and today I am joined by Father Romanus Cesario, a Dominican of the province of St. Joseph. Welcome to the show, Father. Thank you very much for having me. Great. Uh, so today we're here to really kind of prepare for and celebrate the Feast of St. Thomas Aquinas. Can't think of anything I'd like to do better. <laughs> that is wonderful. And so we really wanted just to kind of try to understand a little bit about, right, who is St. Thomas? Why is St. Thomas a gift for the church? And not only, of course, his wonderful importance for theology, uh, but one of the things I was really struck when I read your recent book, uh, Sanctifying Truth, Thomas Aquinas on Christian Holiness, was that you said St. Thomas was an example for all Christians. So maybe we could begin with that. How is St. Thomas Aquinas, this brilliant theologian, this you know, one of the best philosophers of the ages, how could he be an example for all Christians? Well, I think the shortest answer to that question, Michael, is uh, because the teaching that St. Thomas gives us in all of his works is ordered to one thing and one thing only, the salvation of souls. Hmm. It is true St. Thomas spent six of his most productive years at the University of Paris, in France, of course. However, the rest of his academic life was spent in the service to the church with an eye toward promoting Christian holiness, more specifically, one could say, to help Christians get to heaven. Mm-hmm. In his lifetime, of course, Christians meant those who were united with the See of Peter, today Catholics. Uh, but yes, so he's, um, he's a doctor uh, for everybody. This has been obscured somewhat because academic types like to steal St. Thomas. Yes. It is true. We're very grateful to scholarship for uh, establishing, for example, the works of St. Thomas and translating them. Indeed, uh, I'll mention as a plug here, we have underway at Ave Maria some serious uh, translations of works of St. Thomas and his commentators that have not yet appeared in English, mm-hmm. uh, especially the commentary of Cardinal Cajetan on the Summa. But the point is that um, St. Thomas understood his mission as the salvation of souls. Why? Because he was a Dominican, and that's Mm -hmm. exactly what St. Dominic said to the first Dominicans. You become one of us in order to first, of course, sanctify yourself and therefore, and then, that's an important then, mm-hmm. to save souls. St. Thomas summarized this in his uh, laconic Latin, I would say, <laughs> in the phrase that's become familiar to every Dominican, contemplata et alis tradere, contemplate and give the fruits of contemplation, the contemplata, that which one has contemplated, to others. Mm-hmm. So, so in many ways, right, then St. Thomas was not only a great right, professor of theology, a master in the University of Paris, uh, but as a, right, as a Dominican for most of his life, he was also a preacher. He was forming 
and teaching other Dominicans. He was asked to develop a house of studies. So his study was for the sake of what we might call now, right, the evangelization and formation of uh, people amidst uh, perhaps a very con- you know, a lot of confusing times that were going on during the Middle you know Ages. How is it that Aquinas's uh, dedication to truth served the salvation of souls, maybe first in his age and then perhaps in ours? Well, let me say first, as a comment on your earlier remark about the fact that Aquinas devoted a great deal of attention and and energy and time and writing to works other than those destined for the classroom. Mm -hmm. One of the figures of the modern period who recognized this was none other than St. John Henry Newman who, if memory serves, even before his conversion, I may be wrong on that, someone in your audience will be able to correct me if I am, uh, translated into English a work that many people don't recognize as that of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Catena Aria, the Golden Chain. Mm -hmm. And the reason he did it is because in that text, St. Thomas took each of the four Gospels and collected from the manuscripts available to him at that time, which admittedly were fewer than are available to us now, but nonetheless, a good chunk of the Christian heritage, and organized what each of the fathers of the church, East and West, said about the gospel texts, mm-hmm. and thus chain. He, he linked them together and published them as a, uh, a, they were really became glosses, as the medieval said, onto the text of the uh, New Testament, uh, the Gospels at least. Well, that was clearly meant to serve what we would call an apostolic purpose and what you would mm-hmm. call uh, an evangelical, what anyone would today call an evangelical mm-hmm. purpose. So I think it's important to stress as we approach his feast day this year in 2023. Yeah, time goes by when you're having fun. 2023, uh, that uh, St. Thomas is a man for everybody. Mm -hmm. Right, and he would have done that, uh, that recovery in a way of the Greek and Latin patristic understanding of the Gospels, right, in part to help preachers of the Gospel, um, priests, bishops and uh, perhaps some very well-educated laity or perhaps uh, houses of religious formation to be able to receive the teachings of Jesus communicated in the Gospels, received by the fathers. That's correct. So he and, in a way, Newman turn out to be kind of like brother. you know, in a way, uh, they're, they're united by a common love of the Gospels and the fathers which is something that sometimes we kind of might forget with a certain kind of overly academic image of Aquinas, who, of course, is you know, right, you know, the genius commentator on Aristotle and these other elements. So that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful example. Um, how, how would you say that though that that this aspect of truth? I mean, I think in some ways in our own age, uh, it's, you know, the perennial theme maybe of pilot, what is truth today? Is there truth? Who's truth? Uh, there's kind of a, a, a cynical attitude or maybe even just a despairing attitude, almost like people have become exhausted in their search for truth. How, how did Aquinas maybe in his day uh, with some of the uh, crises that were going on and a lot of the confusion maybe with the Albigensians, if you wanted to say a word about that or something. Uh, how did he try to help truth become part of our journey to God, like our, 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 our journey home to heaven? How was truth important for Aquinas in his day? Well, truth was important, <coughs> excuse me, for St. Thomas in his day 
For the very same reason, truth is important for us in our day. Uh, we have to be very uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, right. And the reason for that is very simple. Yes, there's only one truth, and the reason for that is that there's only one God yes. who is the author of truth, who makes the true, the truth true. Now, St. Thomas came at that with the help of Aristotle and the transcendentals, uh, properties of being, but he also recognized that um, if you had two truths in the world, then the, the unity, which we hear so much about today, mm-hmm. is never going to be achieved because uh, two truths about ultimate realities divides, which yeah. we, by the way, see in our own day. And mm-hmm. ultimate realities include things such as human sexuality. Yeah. But even on a more, if you will, a higher level of abstraction at least, uh, there's the famous uh, incident in St. Thomas's life, which gives your audience today a bit of a, uh, what should I say, a peek at his personality. Mm-hmm. He was, in fact, by reason of his natural family, related to the ruling families of Europe, including the French king, uh, mm-hmm. distant relatives, but nonetheless, uh, he wasn't, uh, he didn't come from humble origins, as many saints did. Mm-hmm. And so it wound up that uh, the king of France invited St. Thomas and perhaps his prior and a companion to dinner in the palace in in Paris at the time. France wasn't as big as it is today, but it was still significant. And uh, during the dinner, which was one can imagine, even a holy king uh, nonetheless had a regal table, and uh, St. Thomas, so the king noticed, began uh, to, get, uh, uh, to get lost in his mind. Uh, I, he became abstracted from the table conversation. And uh, the king, uh, being polite to the man he knew was a very important uh, figure even in his, in his own day, mm-hmm. um, didn't pay any attention, and they went on with the dinner, and suddenly, uh, St. Thomas went with his hand on the table and uh, the royal guests, and uh, St. Thomas exclaimed out of nowhere, that solves the Manichees. <laughs> wow. And uh, the king, smart man that yes. he was, immediately called the royal scribes and said, take down whatever he says. Mm-hmm. And, so, and this le- le- the and what solves the Manichees? Well, the Manichees, as you know, of which the Albigensians were a subset, shall we say, or a particular version of Manichaeism, were people <coughs> who, were, would do, who were radical dualists to the point of two gods, a god that mm-hmm. accounted for the good and a god that accounted for the bad, evil, mm-hmm. and they were constantly at war with one another. Yeah, you don't want to live in a Manichaean world. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. religion at best mm-hmm. becomes a religion of fear. You want to live mm-hmm. in a world where you know a good God, yeah. because the true God is a good God, is in charge of things. Mm-hmm. And that he will do everything to ensure that his goodness triumphs. And when you think of the mystery of the cross, to cut to the chase, yeah. one can't imagine a, uh, a more good thing than Christ's death on the cross. Yes, that's really uh, helpful to see that if there's ultimately one truth uh, that's rooted in one God, right? The source of all truth. So truth is something greater than each of us. uh, And in a way, it's greater than the whole universe because it comes from the true God who truly creates the world, right? In, In a way to kind of imitate his truth. Uh, and when maybe in the uh, older in in the you know ancient world or in the medieval world there were heresies of two truths, two gods, an evil god and a good god, or maybe even at times the truth of philosophy, which was different than the truth of theology, that would create a conf- a, a world that's necessarily in conflict, a world in which I could find no peace. So. You know, it, it, the irony there is that many people think that 
if they can, if everybody can have their own truth, that then they have uh, a kind of, I don't know, almost like a kind of freedom. But it seems that it's actually what you're suggesting from Aquinas is that it's the opposite, right? Well, if each uh, of us has our own truth, then we're in a state I, of perpetual not, conflict. Yeah, I'm not suggesting it, uh, Professor Dauphiné. I'm telling you what St. Thomas would say. Uh, this yes. isn't an opinion. Yes. Uh, there's ways of going about this, of course, mm-hmm. uh, which, uh, but take for, but to, so that within the present context, people don't take away from the one truth, one God uh, yeah. uh, truth. Mm-hmm. Remember now, many people know the Summa uh, Theologiae, but they should also recall St. Thomas wrote almost as much in a book called the Summa Contra Gentiles, the Contra Gentiles is sometimes called, yeah. which was a handbook for missionaries mm-hmm. uh, to explain Catholic truth, including the one good and true God who yeah. is the cause of all truth and goodness in the world, yeah. uh, to people who did not believe in Christian revelation. Mm-hmm. And that included mainly uh, uh, the adherents of Islam because the Dominican missionaries of the early, of the, even as early as the 13th century encountered Islam uh, mm-hmm. in various places of largely Southern Europe. So, uh, yeah, the uh, contragentes. So St. Thomas, we don't, sometimes we don't want to make St. Thomas to be uh, a version of modern absolutism, mm, uh, political yes, absolutism, yeah. because uh, he, he wasn't. As a matter of fact, as far as the political order, he was celebrated against the followers of other, another great saint, Augustine, and, and holding for the autonomy of the secular order in mm-hmm. a subordinated way, of course, to divine truth. Yeah, so, so that sense, right, that if all truth comes from God, then there is one truth, but we participate in that truth at various levels. And so Aquinas would also defend famously, right, the kind of uh, the dignity or I don't know whether that's the right word, but maybe, you know, the, the validity of human reasoning and uh, its ability to somewhat know the truth about the created world, to discover the truth about human nature, to discover in a way the truth about God alongside, not in contradiction to, the truth about God that's revealed. Would you say a word about that? Yeah, well, St. Thomas, of course. Uh, yeah, uh, St. Thomas most recently has been applauded for his approach to faith and reason and for their complementarity. Mm-hmm. In the encyclical, that name, Fides et Ratio, Pope St. John Paul II, and uh, there, as you may recall, the Pope devoted several numbers to explaining what he called the perennial validity of St. Thomas's uh, approach to both philosophy and theology. Well, the easiest way to explain it is that St. Thomas recognized that God, uh, the, the human intellect, participated and indeed was an image of the divine intellect. Not the same, of course, but nonetheless an image of it, and in its own limited way was able to come to a knowledge of truth. If to have truth and have no uh, ability to know it would have been a cruel joke. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we see this even in nature. You you see this here in Florida. Uh, The the plants follow the sun. You know, a remarkable uh, uh, flourishing, shall we say. And... uh, Animals clearly, uh, well, uh, the ecology of the, we know that the big animals eat the little ones, Mm -hmm. including here, sometimes, unfortunately, small pets that walk too close to the water where (laughs) alligators are hungry. Mm -hmm. There's a whole, uh, if you will, display of how uh, truth, uh, and the alligator is smart. He he wants living Mm -hmm. meat. He doesn't eat all the stones and grass, uh, stones at least, uh, Mm -hmm. and other things that uh, I don't know whether they eat grass, frankly, (laughs) but uh, they certainly doesn't eat inedible things. He eats uh, live things uh, and nourishing and so forth. Okay, so uh, the the point of that, and we could go on with it, Mm -hmm. is that uh, if God had created a universe that uh, without any inclinations, uh, towards the good and the true, that would have been a stultified universe. 
Yes, yeah. So um, that means St. Thomas recognized that even among things that many people think are matters of faith, there are borderline questions. Mm -hmm. Technically, they're called the preambles of faith that reason is able to attain. And most significantly, the knowledge that God exists. Some of these things are disputed today, admittedly, full disclosure, as they say on the Mm -hmm. television. But nonetheless, the traditional teaching is that the preambles include the immateriality of the soul and therefore its immortality, even its immortality. And indeed, because of human freedom, some responsible uh, accounting for one's actions. All Mm -hmm. of that forms part of a... uh, divine wisdom that one does not need to be a believer to mm. attain. So that there is uh, human beings with our reason uh, in an imperfect manner, uh, nonetheless can recognize that a plant is a plant and a plant has certain ordering. An animal uh-huh. is an animal and has certain ordering to doing things. We can see ordering in the world. We see ordering in ourselves. And so we can recognize a divine order like that is not that is above us. And we can also recognize just as we can recognize, I mean, in a way that an alligator is not a plant, we can also recognize what a human being is. And so that a human being has an immortal soul, that a human being has a moral uh, participates in good and evil. There's like the moral law is not something we, we might be reminded of it by revelation, uh, but it's something in a way that we can discover, and many people uh, right across throughout history and across the world have discovered uh, the difference between man and an alligator <laughs> and the difference between man and God, and the difference in a way that makes human beings subject to uh, the moral law or having this natural inclination to goodness. So right, morality, as we sometimes call it, then is part of the kind of natural world that we can discover and reason about and talk about with our own human reason. Is that a correct yeah. way of formulating it? Sure. Um, but you can also see it very simply, as yes. you began to indicate there. Uh, the world lives as if there's a true and a good. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Any, uh, I hope this isn't... Uh, an example that offends current uh, political correctness, but any uh, housewife that shops for her family, if she can't discern between a rotten apple and a good apple, mm-hmm. she's going to make a very unhappy uh, shopping list uh, of, of produce a, a dinner that's not as what it should be. Um, People travel, uh, they don't do so much now, but formerly European travel and the Mm -hmm. Michelin. All you need to do is pick up a Michelin guide and see how the French organize their restaurants between one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you recognize that uh, there's an ordering of Mm -hmm. good and uh, true, which is uh, now all right when you get to taste. But there comes a point. If anyone says, well... I much prefer uh, a uh, fast food hamburger, say, I won't use any brand names, uh, to a, uh, a, a steak served at one of the steakhouses of New York. Or they're here in Naples yeah. as well. Uh, I won't mention them either, but nonetheless, if, no one, if they don't know the difference between a steakhouse where mm-hmm. the bill today is going to be $200 <laughs> And the fast food where the bill is going to be $5, that's a problem. And mm-hmm. uh, one might indulge it in a certain people and say, taste, uh, you can't dispute taste, but you certainly can dispute the quality of the beef served in either of those two mm-hmm. venues. I mean, and you can go on with this. You could bring it all the way up and ask the question. Uh, why did any man choose this woman rather than another woman? Uh, mm-hmm. for, well, there are all kinds of personal things, right? That, and it's not all limited to physical beauty or to, mm-hmm. uh, but they are concrete features of yeah. the person's, mm-hmm. uh, we'll say, personality. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it's rare that somebody's going to pick a spouse based upon uh, their ability to deceive me, their ability oh, to be unfaithful. Like, of course, exactly. Right. So right. it's always yeah, exactly. it's it we're 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 always evaluating the world based upon yeah. uh, some kind of ordering True, uh, principle yeah. of an inclination to maybe integrity and wholeness. And then understanding that, you know, the corruption thereof. Uh, we're going to uh, take a break in a minute. But when we come back, uh, I'd love, uh, you know, Father uh, Romanus to talk a little bit more about some of the books that you've written. And uh, one of the great things that Aquinas was, right, was not only a student of theology, but a teacher of theology. And so I'd like to work, look a little bit at some of your teaching that you've done uh, via these wonderful books. With pleasure. Thank you. listening to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at AveMaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support, and now let's get back to the show. Father Cesario, would you tell us a little bit about how you became uh, a student of St. Thomas? How were you introduced to Thomas Aquinas? Well, the answer to that question is very simple. I, uh, I became a Dominican in uh, uh, 1964, okay. which was before the council. Uh, to, or truth to be told, mm-hmm. I went to Providence College in 1962 before the council began. Mm-hmm. And uh, prior to 1962, 65, 68, depends where you want to put it, uh, the the Leonine revival of Thomism more or less dominated Catholic education, surely in the United States. And so uh, even if Mm -hmm. you didn't join the Dominicans, people of my generation met St. Thomas Aquinas in their theology and philosophy classrooms. And then as I entered more deeply into formation, of course, uh, the, the Dominicans, uh, our Dominican teachers simply explained, St. Thomas is Shenu. He belongs to us. And uh, there were various attempts to uh, make the Thomism of the 60s and 70s, what I'd call dialogic, namely to, to the point that at one point, I, I, I think there were about five or six different types of Thomism. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but in any case, we always went back to the first principles and used Thomas text. So, um, yeah, I was born into it, so to speak. And when it came time for doctoral studies, I was lucky enough to have uh, Father Coleman O'Neill, an Irish Dominican, who was one of the great Thomists of the mm-hmm. period. I had others in Washington, Father William Hill and Father Augustine um, Wallace, uh, who each of whom published and mm-hmm. uh, upheld both the philosophy and theology of Aquinas. But it was uh, O'Neill that probably put a stamp on me, and that's why one of the first things I published was a re-edition of his work, Meeting Christ in the Sacraments, Alba House, still in print after I think now it's almost 40 years, mm-hmm. and used widely, I'm told, in uh, seminaries and formation houses and Catholic education programs. Yeah, and and I think it's, there was, during that time maybe, on, and of course probably in every age, but especially maybe in the 70s, and there was a lot of confusion around sacramental theology, and uh, Father Coleman O'Neill uh, and your publication of his work was almost, I think you maybe called it sometimes like a sacramental realism. Uh, what, how is that... Uh, helpful. How was like Thomas's kind of careful work helpful in creating a real theology of the sacraments? Because as I said, I think a lot of confusion uh, was kind of in the air and probably continues to be today. Well, what your audience needs to know, which the many of them know, but perhaps don't advert to as much as they should, especially academic types, Jesus came before Descartes. (laughs) The church was born at Pentecost or at the Annunciation, either Mm -hmm. one works. And those events took place before the birth of René Descartes. 
And uh, St. Thomas was born before Descartes. And uh, that makes all the difference. It makes all the difference the, the, uh, uh, in this regard. It's the confidence that you have in the capacity of human intelligence to lay hold of the essence of things. And if you're doubtful about that, well, that provides another starting point for philosophy than what one would call a philosophical realism. Now, I was privileged in Washington when I was there in the 80s. We had the John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family, and we had with us uh, Professor Ken Schmitz, a Canadian teacher who was, who, God be good to him, he's gone to his reward, and which he richly merited because he was a great teacher of uh, philosophy and uh, recognized one of the world recognized uh, experts on Hegel, and he actually could read Hegel in German. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he was disappointed that his successor in the chair didn't. Uh, and any, or couldn't, I should say. In any case, um, Schmitz taught me many things, and he had the wisdom uh, to sum them up briefly. He said, modern philosophy, by which he meant philosophy after the 16th century, is a footnote to Descartes. And that goes all the way up to people like Husserl, who, and, and uh, fine. Uh, so as a result, um, the, how does that play out in the sacraments? Well, many people, uh, they become persuaded largely because things perhaps priests say, things that theology teachers say, that the sacraments are symbols, and they're symbols mm -hmm. that transpire within the context of a com communitarian symbolic activity, otherwise known as the Sunday Mass and other liturgies, and that the, the meaning of the sacrament is uh, to be discovered in deciphering what the symbol means oftentimes for me. That sounds very isolating. <laughs> yes, well, MTA. I mean, in a word, sacramental realism yeah. does not accept that as the yes. starting point. Uh, as O'Neill puts it so uh, beautifully, if St. Thomas and the scholastics, because it's not just St. Thomas, yeah. it's St. Bonaventure, <laughs> it's Duns Scotus, I mean, it's, this isn't just St. Thomas. Yeah. He said, if the medieval scholastics, who really carried the faith from the patristic period into the modern period, had wanted to say that the sacraments work because they're effective symbols, they would have said that <laughs> because they were perfectly capable of formulating that sentence in Latin. Okay, yeah. But they didn't. Mm -hmm. Now, even when you get down to uh, the questions of, of causality and how they work in the sacraments, mm -hmm. among, about which they admittedly disputes among the scholastics, yes. and the disputes the church recognized at the Council of Trent by the language it chose to use it. Um, the fact of the matter is that the sacraments of the the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church do something. They are agents or causes of divine grace and not merely symbolic representations of them. No matter how much you, there's only so much you can uh, pump up symbol to become a cause. Right. Yeah. So sacramental realism is that idea that in the sacraments, God is doing something for our salvation. That's correct. So we are truly reborn in the sacrament of baptism, truly forgiven in the sacrament of confession, truly receive Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, right, in the sacrament of the Eucharist. And all these different elements, and right, we're not in this kind of Cartesian world of split between spirit and matter, so that the uh, are looking yeah, to put uh, meaning onto the yes, symbol. where where the matter is um, only has meaning insofar as we attribute meaning to it. But if in the classical world, if the world is already created, then all matter already matters. And so we recognize the matter, we recognize in the matter the created order, both already at the philosophical level and then also at the sacramental level. Right. Yeah. So I think that's really. And the best way to you know, see that the church, even the most liberal theologian, will, should not and will not be allowed 
to argue for change of the matter of the Eucharist, mm. even in places that do not grow wheat sure. or, or do not grow the grapes from which wine mm -hmm. is made. Yeah, right. So in all the sacraments, right, the matter matters. The matter matters. And because the matter, by God's um, saving action, becomes the means by, just in some ways, is the matter of Jesus Christ's human nature matters for our salvation. Jesus has to have a true human nature on the cross to die, right, for us out of love. So in the same way, then the sacraments, right, of water, the sacraments of oil, the anointing, the bread and the wine, all of these matter. You even think of the sacrament of the man and woman in marriage or For the example. man in the priesthood, right? Um, so yeah. those are really one. That's a wonderful uh, reminder. So I wanted to shift gears a little bit and just, uh, so you have uh, some wonderful books here uh, that you've uh, written uh, over many years and taught. One book here is called The Godly Image, Christian Satisfaction in Aquinas. And it was recently uh, reissued. Was it after 25 years? Um, I think more. Or it might have been 30 years. I yeah. was. Um, t tell us a little bit about what were you? What was the, maybe the key point of trying to address this notion of Christian satisfaction? Well, one of the uh, the key points that ecumenical discussions, especially the mainline ones, Calvinist and Lutheran and Catholic, mm -hmm. run into deals with the question of, of of satisfaction. Can the creature, including the created human nature of Christ, make up satisfaction, anything yeah. to God. Mm -hmm. And so satisfaction, maybe for our listeners who aren't as familiar, would be, uh, right, if I, if, 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 I dis, if I hurt our relationship by perhaps stealing your car, well, at least satisfaction, I'd have to somehow... Do give, more than give yeah, the car back. I'd have back. to give the car back, but then also mm -hmm. somehow do something to satisfy reestablish the relationship in love and trust. Satisfaction is a personal engagement. Uh, every Catholic is familiar with satisfaction, although it goes by the name, my penance. Every okay. time the, you go to confession and the priest says for your penance, say three Hail Marys mm -hmm. or whatever, that in fact technically is called satisfaction. Hmm. The, the reformers didn't like that aspect of penance. Indeed, they didn't like penance at all. Uh, but, um, and as a result, one, uh, it became very difficult to explain the sacrifice of the Mass, namely that by his death on the cross, mm. Christ made satisfaction to God for the sins of the whole human race from Adam to the last creature on earth. Mm -hmm. And both Calvin thought it was, it was a, a, a tragedy, and Luther, less, Luther, fine, I don't want to talk about the reformers because mm -hmm. there are experts on them, but I think no one, will, uh, no one uh, is going to say that either of the great uh, reformed or Lutheran traditions accepted the sacrifice of the mass as an essential part of Christian living. Okay. And gradually that meant, too, that the Eucharist became less... Uh, a part uh, it became a symbolic activity, sure. uh, the Lord's Supper. So, and uh, to cut to the chase, when uh, ecumenism was perhaps more active than it is today, that's another discussion, uh, it was thought that if satisfaction could be shown to be something, say, less than commercial, like makeup, it could be shown to be really a personal transformation of the, on the part of the sinner, Mm -hmm. to become sensitive to the divine goodness, you could say to the divine truth, mm -hmm. then uh, it was thought that uh, Protestant theologians would discover that it wasn't quite so commercial. Like, uh, see. So like a commercial would be like it's like an exchange. Like, like yeah. So we're reducing a relationship out of love to just an ex This is the criticism of the Catholic That's view right. would be yeah. that it's just an exchange of like a contract. Whereas you're trying, you were showing that it had a personal dimension in which we could recover and become sensitive again to 
the goodness of God and His truth and His truth. You know, that, mm-hmm. Yeah. So satisfaction becomes more of an inward transformation in accord with the objective reality of God in the world. That's right. Um, right, That's as opposed right. to merely like I'm paying my taxes so That's that I correct. don't get, have the IRS investigate me. That's right. Okay. That I, uh, and mm-hmm. yeah. These the issues become complicated. Yes, yes. but uh, mm-hmm. the broad uh, the, the book that you're asking about, mm-hmm. and that's why it's called the Godly Image. Mm-hmm. It's called the Godly Image because what satisfaction does is, in fact, uh, let's get the right verb here, mm-hmm. uh, enhance the Godly Image, which mm-hmm. is the gift of baptism mm-hmm. that each of us receives, precisely mm-hmm. for the, the reason you said we become more. I, the word sensitive uh, it needs to be you know explained. It's an intellectual sensitivity mm-hmm. that we might not feel, but we mm-hmm. know that adhering yeah. to the truth. Yeah. But in any case, um, that's why I and I did it by t- going through the works of Saint Thomas to see where he spoke about it, uh, because many people were influenced by, shall we say, an unadorned reading of Saint Anselm, mm-hmm. the one who made. The um, the concept, yeah. part and parcel of Catholic theology, mm-hmm. and Saint Anselm, of course, was a man of an earlier generation. He was a monk. There were all different kinds of things that uh, left him open to misinterpretation. Yeah, I think I remember somebody, or, or when I was uh, teaching this sometimes to students of Aquinas, that sense of which uh, Christ makes satisfaction on the cross um, out of love. Right, so that it's out of this, um, as opposed to, um, you know, being punished. An angry God. Yeah, he's not being punished by an angry God. He is, he is in the midst of right the full suffering under which he is going. He is completely loving God with God's own love, and therefore the satisfaction is that restoration to that communion of love. Um, and uh, another and. Um, Another book uh, that you've written is Introduction to Moral Theology. Obviously, we don't have time to talk about the, you know, a, a lot of so many aspects of this uh, book, which uh, which we've used uh, for a course here at Ave Maria because it's uh, such a substantive uh, treatment. But maybe what's one thing you might try to say about, you know, if some let's just say somebody's thinking of trying to buy a book for their local parish priest or uh, for this Christmas, or something yeah, else. That, that would be a good uh, one. Yeah. Uh, and I would say next year, 2023, Yes. Uh, or, or this year, I yeah. should say, yeah. 2023 is the 30th anniversary of the encyclical of John Paul II, Veritatis Splendor, mm-hmm. which was the first, and up to now the last, pontifical papal statement about the principles of moral theology. Yes. And that book, for various reasons, mm is a commentary, an extended commentary on Veritatis Splendor. Mm-hmm. And it's an extended commentary on Veritatis Splendor because it uh, observes the moral theology of St. Thomas Aquinas. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was uh, looking at it, I was impressed. And when I was, it was uh, t- actually teaching it to students, I remember that this idea that the principles of moral theology are kind of inter- they're 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 part of our human nature and therefore recognizable by philosophical reasoning, right? and yet at the same time, in a way, they're disclosed to us by Christ, and in Christ we see that they become right. Our natural moral orderings uh, are kind of taken up. Taken up, but without being destroyed, right? Uh, taken up into this greater love of God, uh, and so is—is is there? You maybe, you know, could you summarize in a in a just? I, I can uh, because I'll just quote yeah. Pope Saint John Paul II. Yeah. I mean, the famous line out of uh, the Council, mind mm-hmm. you, it said he put it in there as a bishop. Only in Christ does man discover who he is, by yes. which he un- means understands completely and perfectly. Mm, yes. He didn't mean mm-hmm. to exclude that uh, you need Christ to know, for example, that adultery is wrong, mm-hmm. because you don't continue in that line of... Yes, yes. But uh, do you need Christ in order to realize the full heinousness of a violation of the marriage bed or the marriage contract mm-hmm. or married love. Yeah, it helps. 
Yeah, that's that's beautifully put. That's beautifully put. And uh, this last book uh, that you, uh, I think, came out uh, about a year or two ago with Magnificat on Sanctifying Truth, Thomas Aquinas on Christian Holiness. This book is really written for just, uh, you know, the average uh, layperson, right, uh, in the pew, just really any Catholic or really any Christian or even, uh, right, any, anyone who's interested in uh, learning more about Aquinas and learning more about truth. Uh, what were maybe one or two themes that you really wanted to communicate to people uh, in this, you know, non-academic book? Well, the title gives you the main theme. Truth is not your enemy. Wow. Truth sanctifies. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a drama, is it not, of uh, our world today. Even truths, even truths that should be uh, welcomed, like the sacrament of penance and reconciliation. Who doesn't want to be forgiven for their sins? Who Mm -hmm. wants to carry them all around and become more and more convoluted in trying to justify them? Nobody should really want that. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, we have a truth. It's called the sacrament of penance and reconciliation, in which the actual sins committed after baptism are forgiven, as you said earlier, completely. Mm -hmm. Not... uh, and, and that forgiveness doesn't depend on one's emotional state, a sense of what feelings and so forth, but rather it's, if you will, an objective gift of the Father to the penitent mm-hmm. through the ministry of the church. Yeah. So uh, truth sanctifies, and yeah, we should want the truth. And then secondly, uh, the truth is not something abstract that's going to hurt us. Um, why can't I do the things that feel good? Uh, but it's, uh, the truth is going to sanctify us because the more that we grow in conformity to Christ, which is what, the, if you want to find the truth incarnate, mm-hmm. which he says, I am the truth, the more, of course, we find, as again, John Paul II said, the, the true nature of our humanity. Mm-hmm. And we might even think that in a way that sanctifying truth is it's a liberating truth, a truth that frees us from some of the uh, bondages of the, um, you know, ignorance or our own limitations of our age um, or, you know, limitations of our either uh, sins or fault misunderstandings. Uh, and when we discover that truth, we can then recognize that God is acting to restore us to communion with him. I also really enjoyed about the book is you mentioned that Thomas Aquinas is for everyone and everyone is called to study. Everyone may not be called to study, uh, right, as a full-time job, but nobody is, I mean, we all have minds and we were all created by God. So how would you maybe say for, you know, I don't know, like, you know, just like people that are either very busy with work, very busy with families, how can they imitate St. Thomas's vocation to study? Well, uh, today we're lucky, frankly, uh, more than perhaps people of earlier generations because our, our media, mm-hmm. which it surrounds me here, both the... Uh, visual media Mm -hmm. and the audio media and then the old-fashioned book and pamphlets and digital copies and so forth. In other words, it becomes very easy to lay hold of instruction. Mm -hmm. Study requires instruction, and the instruction, as as every educator knows, can transpire at different levels. Mm -hmm. You're the dean. You uh, calibrate courses by uh, one number after the other. Mm -hmm. Um, And any parent that sent a child to school realizes that you don't start the child off in the seventh grade, I mean, and so forth. So uh, it's easy to study. And the advantage, of course, of learning the truth is that for at least the United States and the English-speaking world, you escape the slavery of tolerance, which mm. is the alternative to truth, that the highest ideal is to tolerate people's opinions even when today in some quarters they reach what can only be described as caricatures of humanity. Mm-hmm. That's certainly yeah. true of the sexual uh, conduct of the modern world, but yeah. Yeah. but so uh, yeah, the, you want to know the truth, 
uh, and you want to discover it early because not knowing it uh, can, in some cases, lead to some pretty uh, un- unhappy uh, sins. Yeah, truth that's to really, so, in some ways, right to begin where they to begin wherever you are, and and I, I think that was a great uh, way to recognize. Yeah, if you can't, you know, take classes, you can listen to podcasts. That's right. <laughs> wonderful, <For> wonderful <laughs> themes, and so many good books we have. I think right now as well, and. Uh, so many wonderful books. It's it's wonderful to see a, a professor of theology and uh, um, you know master within the um, of sacred theology within the Dominican order, again who both teaches teachers and teaches you know um, lay people directly through your writings. Uh, you know, Father, I just wanted to maybe ask you just a quick question. Uh, if you could just say at the end, um, for a, somebody who wants to learn more about Saint Thomas. Uh, maybe either a student of theology or even just, you know, somebody who's listening to this who's not very familiar. Is there a, a particular book that you found helpful to introduce St. Thomas to students? Well, um, I felt the need for such a book. And uh, with the help of a young Dominican colleague known to you, Father Cadetan Cuddy, uh, we wrote such a book. It's called Thomas and the Thomas. The first half of it is an introduction to the who Aquinas is and the general lines of his teaching. Mm-hmm. The second half is a study of the long suite of commentators, we call them Thomists, who themselves have kept St. Thomas's teaching alive by engaging the thought of their periods. And, it, and, and the commentatorial That's tradition is 800 years. You might not like, not everyone maybe will be interested in the second half, mm-hmm. but in terms of a short presentation, a more classical one that's been around for, there, is, there are all kinds of classical presentations of St. Thomas, uh, especially done in the first half of the 20th century mm-hmm. because of Pope Leo XIII's revival of Thomism. Yeah. And uh, that includes figures that I think have been instrumental in your life, Dr. Daphne, uh, Ralph McInerney uh, mm-hmm. has an introduction to St. Thomas, and uh, the French were great on popularizing mm-hmm. haute vulgarisation. And uh, I, uh, all of those I mention in this book, Thomas and the Thomas, okay. and so they're there, and in the English translations are there. For people, university students and people who really want to get into Aquinas, the master volume at the moment is it's fairly thick and detailed, but it's the first volume of Jean-Pierre Torel's Thomas Aquinas, The Man and His Work, and the first volume is his, The Man and His Work. Right. And you can um, find that at Catholic University of America Press. Well, excellent. Well. Father Romano Cesario, thank you so much for your time on our show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on the Catholic Theology Show.